Okay. Good morning. Hymn 676. Hymn 676, stanza one. Behold a host arrayed in white like thousand snow-clad mountains bright with palms they stand who is this band before the throne of light these are the saints of glorious fame who from the great affliction came and in the flood of Jesus' blood are cleansed from guilt and shame. They now serve God both day and night. They sing their songs in endless light. Their anthems ring as they all sing with angels shining bright. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord, absolve your people from their offenses, that from the bonds of our sins, which by reason of our frailty we have brought upon ourselves, we may be delivered by your bountiful goodness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. The verse of the week is Genesis 3.15. Let's speak that together. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, who is I? God. Yes, God. Between you, who is you? Pardon me? Man. Not man. Adam. Not Adam. Sin. It's, think, about, think about the narrative of the fall in the garden. The Lord speaks to the serpent. Between you, that's the serpent, and the woman. Who is the woman? In the story, he talks to Eve. But when the Lord says, the woman, who does he mean? The Not the church. There's, it's one woman, 
It's singular. Look ahead a little bit between your seed and her seed. Mary. The Blessed Virgin will give her her proper title. The Blessed Virgin Mary. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This passage is called the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel. Because Genesis 3.15 is the first mention of Christ who comes to redeem the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the first time that he is mentioned. And he is right here. Between your seed, your is whose? The serpent's. And what is the seed of the serpent? Sin. Okay, yeah. We can say sin. We can say what else? Pride, which is, of course, related to sin. And when we talk about seed, specifically, what is meant? Your generation. Your, yeah, your offspring. Yes. So... Who are the children of the devil? Those who reject the Lord. So think about what Christ says to the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, you are like your father, the devil, who was a liar from before the foundations. So, uh, or a liar from the beginning. So his seed these things plus, you know, more, all the fruits of unrighteousness and the fruits of unbelief, and her, that is, Mary's, seed. What's the difference between this seed and this seed? A capital letter! Good, you win the prize. Because this seed is not generations. This seed is Christ himself, the seed of the woman. Now, this is important that Christ is referred to as the seed of the woman. Do you know why? Why does Christ have to be born of a virgin? Why does Isaiah prophesy that the Lord will be born of a virgin? Isaiah prophesies that because God says it right here. A woman does not have seed that she passes on. But here, there is the seed of the woman. Why? Why, is, why must Christ be born of a virgin, do you think? Do you know? So he could feel the things that we do. He could have done that if he were born of a normal union between man and woman. There's nothing different about that than about being born of a virgin. But he had to be born perfect. He had to be born sinless. And sin, the sin of Adam is inherited uh, through the passing of the seed of the Father. You are conceived in sin. Your mother is sinful and your father is sinful and the union of the mother with the father is a sinful union, but your father passes down the curse of his father who is Adam. The curse of Adam is passed down through all of his progeny. That he is the seed of the woman means that he is conceived and born apart from the inherited guilt of Adam. Now he takes on that guilt, but it isn't until his baptism. He that is, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. This is 
the, this is one of the few times when the New King James translation lets you down. Because if you think it sounds strange, it's because it does. Bruise, you should think of as crush. Uh, because, but in the Hebrew, the word for bruise also means crush. It means to bruise and to crush together. So this is often translated as, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But I don't like it because then it's equal, right? We both come out with a bruise and all's fair. Eye for an eye, bruise for a bruise after all, right? But no, because when Christ dies, his heel is bruised. He is a, a slight affliction, but death and sin and the devil are dead. They are crushed. There's a really great scene in The Passion of the Christ, if you've seen that movie, where Jesus prays in the garden and a snake slithers by and he goes and smashes its head. And it was on purpose. He shall crush your head. Uh, okay. There's more I could say, but we don't have the time. So then, what's the, the bruise is healed? That's, that's just... What is a bruise? I mean, what is a bruise? Yeah. Medically. Yeah. Think about it. What happened? You, yeah. I bump the table, mm -hmm. and then I have a bruise on my thigh. But what is the bruise? Well, it's just a slight mark. It's a very, 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 very minor injury. It's, so, yeah, this is why I don't like it, because then it bruises the same. Well, I, you know, I, you, I got a little scratch, and you got a little scratch. But the death of Christ is not a little scratch. The death of Christ is but a bruise because he rises again. It's nothing. His torment and death is uh, undone in the resurrection. It's a bruise because it heals. He comes back. But this, the head of the serpent never becomes uncrushed. Death never becomes undead. Satan's power never becomes his own again. It's lost forever. He is crushed. So those people that reject the virgin birth miss the whole point of this passage, right? People that reject the virgin, the virgin birth miss the point of more than just this. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, let's speak this again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, what is the second article of the creed? And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. What does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. Okay. Well, don't get ahead of yourself. That'll come next week. <laughs> I've got to divide it up. Uh, so... There's really one big thing, one big thing here that you're confessing with part one of the, the three big parts of this explanation. And that is this. 
The Lord Jesus Christ has two natures. He is first, true God. And he is also, second, true man. And what percentages, if you had to look at Jesus and break it down, about what percentage do you think he would be one versus the other? He's 100% God and 100% man. Yeah, right. That's the good that cat. <laughs> it was a trick question, yeah. <laughs> You're getting wise to me. Uh, yeah, he's 100% and 100%. That's, again, Bible math. Uh, any, anybody who enjoys math or has a math major or anything, you're of no use in the church because Bible math doesn't work the way that math out there does. Because Christ is 100% God, but he is also 100% man. Not 200% person, but only 100% person. Fully God and fully man. Begotten from eternity, born of the Virgin Mary. And you also then say that he is your Lord. I believe that he is my Lord. He, this man, who is true God and true man, is my Lord. And what does that mean then when you confess that he is your Lord? Mm. Okay, yes, but you've already said that because you've said he's true God. So it means something to say that Jesus Christ is your Lord. What does a Lord do? Let's, let's hop in the time machine. We're going to go back to feudal medieval England and Europe. What does the Lord do? Rules. Yeah, he rules. He's in charge. But is that good for you or bad for you? Okay, well, sure. It depends on the Lord. But in an ideal feudal economy... He takes care of you. He rules over you, but he doesn't do it in an overbearing way. He takes care of you. He is a benefactor. He is a savior. He defends you. He gives you the things that you need. He takes care of everyone who's under his care. So then to say that Jesus Christ is your Lord is to say that he is to you all of those things. He is your ruler, your governor, your benefactor, the one who defends you. And you've already talked about in the first article what God the Father does for you, guards and defends you from all danger, protects you from all evil. How does he do that? He does it through his Son, who he has sent to you to be your Lord. The, the Lord always works through means. That's important. Okay, any questions? Okay, to Sunday school, you may, you may depart. Yes. Um, there's a couple more things I want to say about Genesis 3.15. If you like... It, okay, I'll do it. We'll do it in this order. There is a theory of the crucifixion that comes from archaeology and the study of history. And the theory is that the crucifixion is not quite, that the act of crucifixion is not quite how it is often depicted to be. And what I mean by that is that when you look at your crucifix, what do Jesus' feet look like? Yeah, they're on top of each other, sort of like this. 
And even if you watch something like The Passion, they put a block under his feet and they nail the block into the beam and then nail the feet into the block. So he can use the block to push himself up to try and take a breath. It's part of the thing that makes a crucifixion one of the most heinous, uh, torturous ways to die from, from the early world. The Romans perfected a lot of things, uh, some good, some bad. One of the things, yeah, that was something they were good at, was killing people but making it last. Uh, you really knew that you uh, messed up if you were being crucified, generally speaking. But there is some archaeological evidence that would suggest that perhaps crucifixion didn't happen that way when it came to how they put their feet. There, and uh, I believe that something like the Shroud of Turin, if you believe that the Shroud of Turin is really the piece of cloth that covered Jesus, which I do, and if you ever want to talk to me about that, well, come and find me, but it, it's going to take more time than what we have right now. So needless to say, I believe that, and if you believe that, and you look at the way the blood patterns are on the sheet, it, there is a, a pattern of wounds that are consistent with crucifixion and scourging and all of the things that would have happened to Christ. But the feet are, are kind of an interesting part of that, if I'm remembering correctly. I think it lines up with the archaeological evidence. But that evidence says that there wasn't a, a, a little block that you would put your feet on, but that they would take your feet and put it on either side of the pole and then drive a spike through your heel right into the wood and they drive it through the bone so your bone would support your weight and it wouldn't tear through and that you'd be stuck there with, with the only way to push yourself up being nails that are all the way through your heel and through your tendon and everything. Um, which brings a little bit more context than if it's true to the idea of having his heel be bruised. Now, of course, scripture is like an onion. There's many layers, and it's also like a symphony in that it has a lot of different facets and a lot of different parts when you look at how to interpret it that all come together in one harmonious whole. So I'm not saying that what I have already taught about this, that it refers to the death and uh, burial of Christ, being the bruise, the, the wound that is painful but is temporary and heals in the, resur excuse me, in the resurrection, um, but that there is also an aspect to this uh, where the heel of him really is bruised. That, that there is this uh, idea that this even talks about the kind of death that he's going to receive. And of course, Christ, the greatest interpreter of Scripture, because he is the Scriptures, says again and again and again, the Son of Man must be crucified. And of course, in Genesis 28, you see the, the ladder of Jacob that isn't a ladder, but the crucifixion, that, uh, that you see Christ throughout scripture and the idea of a crucifixion, a death by crucifixion, taking place all throughout the scriptural narrative. Uh, it's, sometimes it's kind of hidden or it's used in language that, you know, it's not black and white coming out and say, hey, Jesus is going to come and he's going to be crucified. But the language that points to it is there. Here's the second point. If you like art and uh, religious art, 
there is a really neat website called Full of Eyes. I think it's fulloveyes.net, but you can probably just Google Full of Eyes art, and Full of Eyes is one word. And uh, I, think, I think it's Baptist or Evangelical, that's the folks behind it, but the art is really, really cool. The idea behind the whole website was that it was uh, a different kind of preaching, preaching by what you see. So when you look at the imagery, uh, every image depicts a verse from Scripture that presents a theological reality. And I have spent a lot of time just staring at those images and looking at all of the stuff that's being proclaimed by them. They really are fantastic. But there's one in particular that ties into Genesis 3.15, and it is uh, Christ's feet as he hangs on the cross, and, and they are like this, and there's the nail that goes through his feet, but there is a serpent's head in between his feet and the block of the cross, and the nail is going through his feet and through the open mouth of the dead snake that is nailed to the cross. And it's pretty cool. And it's, it's this idea. It's, a, it's a, an image that was done about Genesis 3.15, but the image is all about the crucifixion because Genesis 3.15 is all about the crucifixion. So uh, I, I would, I'll maybe try and post that on the, on the Facebook page, but if I forget, that's your homework, is to go look it up. And you can spend all kinds of time on the website looking at the artwork that they have. Just... Uh, fantastic art. Really, really, really neat, too. It's, it's different. It doesn't look like anything you've ever seen before, I guarantee you. So, full of eyes. I'll, I'll write it down. Uh, I'll put it up on the top. Yes, yes. They are contemporary. I think the site was maybe started in the early 2000s, maybe two, like 2005, something like that, but don't quote me on that. Uh, just take my word for it that they're good. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's contemporary art, and um, that's one of the things that makes it so interesting, why I say it's like nothing you've seen before. Really cool. That's about all that I can say to describe it. The rest of the way, you have to go yourself just to see and then you will understand. Okay, any other questions about Genesis 3.15? Perfect. We're all on the same page. We know it all. Um, there's papers on the table. If you remember, the papers are there. I'm planning to do a Bible study. I was going to do it right away here, but then I remembered I have something better. Uh, so, but we're still going to talk about death and dying and heaven and hell and little bits of revelation. And I want to answer questions that you have. I know a lot of the questions that you have, but if there's anything that you think of over the next few weeks here, write it down and put your question in the basket so I can make sure that if you have a burning question that you would like me to talk about, about anything involving that, uh, what, what happens when the Lord comes? What about the rapture? I know we talked about the rapture, but if you want me to talk about that more, just write it down. Uh, heaven and hell. Why are Christian funerals the way they are? What do we think about death? What do we think about dying? What do we do when we die? What do we... All, anything like that. Write a question down, and I will do my best to address it. Okay?
But starting next week, we're going to finish up with this thing on confirmation. Then next week, we've got a new Bible study that we're going to start, which will... uh, I don't want to spoil the surprise. So I'm just going to say it's something... I can't believe that I forgot about it when I put these papers out the first time. Uh, It's something I've been planning for a really long time. And I uh, am excited, and it's going to be fun. But it's for, for Advent and Christmas tide. We will uh, have a special Advent and Christmas themed Bible study. Okay, so to confirmation. It's been a very long time since we started this. Here is the cliff notes of what we've done. Confirmation is not graduation. Uh, it turned into graduation during the 1900s, which is one reason why often it would coincide with your graduation from eighth grade. Uh, because they'd say, well, you're graduating from grade school, and then you're graduating in the church too. And that's, by the way, that's where the white robes came from. Uh, The white robes for confirmation came from the idea of graduation. In fact, the robes that are often used are the same kind of robes that you would wear for an eighth grade graduation. All of this goes back into the 1900s, or excuse me, the 18th century, the 19th century, the 1800s, late 1800s. Again, a lot of this is because of pietism and rationalism. So they started pushing the age for confirmation way back because they said, we need to make sure you have all the school you could possibly have because this is something really holy and you shouldn't, you shouldn't have it uh, until we know that your faith is good. And how do we know that your faith is good? Well, we're going to give you a whole bunch of tests and examinations, and if you pass the examinations, then we know that you have faith, because faith is up here, not in here. That's what pietism and rationalism, pietism and rationalism are both kind of bad things that stem from good ideas. The road to hell, indeed, is paved with good intentions. Piety is good, and reason is good, but pietism is bad and rationalism is bad, and when the two get together, the seed, the spawn of pietism and rationalism is a very, very bad thing. Uh, So language that is bad when you talk about confirmation is this, the end of classes, hey, you've reached the end of your classes, now it's time to be confirmed. Guess what? You talk like about confirmation like that, and after confirmation, you won't ever see your confirmands again. Uh, it is the goal of your education. So that we'll, well, what are we going to, what's the goal of these classes? Well, we'll sit down and, and look at, you know, student outcomes. The goal is confirmation, which means that when you're done with classes, confirma- and you're done with confirmation, well, what else is there now? It isn't, it isn't the goal, and even if you ask me right now, what is the goal of my education? Like for midweek classes, we're doing Old Testament catechesis, we do New Testament catechesis. What is the goal of that education? Well, my end goal is not confirmation. My end goal is biblical literacy. I want you to be able to open the Bible up, and I want you to be able to read it, and I want you to be able to understand what's going on. I want you to see that the words of the catechism and what we believe as Christians and specifically as Lutherans is drawn from the text of Scripture. I want you to know the names when I talk about Moses and Aaron. I want you to know who those people are. When I say things like the, the circumcision party 
or which is not as much fun as you think it sounds. Uh, and that was a joke. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it, the circumcision party was a group of Jews that, or Christians that said you still have to be circumcised even as a Christian. Uh, they were also called the circumcisers or the Judaizers, folks like that, but the circumcision party, or things like altar and atonement. You have to know what all these ideas are. That's the goal of the education. The end goal of the education is that you understand the scripture, not that you come to uh, a date and do a thing. And likewise, what is the goal of the catechumenate? Well, the goal of the catechumenate is not that you would become a member of the church, or if you're young and striving for confirmation, that you go through the catechumenate to be confirmed. Again, that's not the goal. The goal is that everything you learned about your biblical literacy then ties into the faith, and you see how everything in the faith is drawn from scripture. You learn about the liturgy and why things are the way that they are, because I'm not content telling you, we do this because this is how Lutherans do it, because then you still beg the question, but why do Lutherans do it? So my goal is that you understand the faith. You understand scripture with the, the basic catechesis, and with the catechumenate you understand the faith, and that is the goal. You, 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 the rite of passage language, well this is a rite of passage, uh, or the language that says, you know, the, the child that says, well why do I have to go to, why do I have to go to that, why do I have to do that? And you say, well because that's what you have to do. I did it, your father did it, your grandfather did it, you, you just have to do it. Well that kind of language doesn't really work either because then it's again this arbitrary thing. Well you just, you gotta do it and then after that nothing matters. And finally, this is the one that always gets me. Confirmation is the requirement for the Eucharist. You can't have the body and blood of Jesus unless you're confirmed. And I know you've all heard that because that is uh, a majority opinion, but not the only opinion, uh, and not the most historic or correct opinion. Again, all of this starts coming into play during the late 1800s, 18, late 1880s into the 1890s is when the church in America started changing and saying, well, we're not going to do things the way that we used to do them. We're going to start doing them this way. We're going to start taking a really long time. We're going to say that you, now you can't have the body and blood until you are confirmed. We even use bad language because we call, we make distinctions in our membership, don't we? We have baptized members and confirmed members. Yeah, but it's but it's bad to split them up that way. Baptized members versus confirmed members. It's, it, it speaks to a disconnect between what our understanding is about what baptism is, what it's for, what it does, where it directs you. Remember, everything that is given at the font is nourished at the altar. All of the sacraments, however many of them you want to believe that there are, at least three, at least three, because remember, confession and absolution is a sacrament. Read the Book of Concord, you'll see that they call it a sacrament. I'm already busting up everything that you learned in confirmation class, because you only learned that there were two. And that's it. You, and uh, here's the deal, folks. Uh, you read the Book of Concord, and this is what all of the Lutherans say. We don't care how many sacraments there are, as long as we understand that baptism and the Lord's Supper are the most important of all of the sacraments. Otherwise, who cares how many there are? There could be, there could be ju just those two, or there could be 10 million, as far as we know and as, as much as we care, as long as 
out of that giant collection of sacraments, however many that you believe there are, you know that baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two king sacraments. And everyone says, okay, that's fine. Yeah, we can do that. So, but there are, you say there's at least three, with the two kings being the sacrament of the altar and the sacrament of holy baptism. Okay. Now, we're going to talk about this idea that confirmation is the benchmark for receiving the sacrament. And I'm first going to tell you that that's wrong by, <laughs> by reading to you the small catechism. <laughs> Who receives this sacrament worthily? Fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training. Okay, so do it if you want. But that person is truly worthy and well prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So according to that logic then, what is the benchmark for the reception of the Eucharist? To believe that you receive it for forgiveness of sins. Even more than that. Yeah, and that it is the body and the blood of Christ. So the benchmark is not, well, have you been confirmed? Are you 13, 14, 15 years old? Have you graduated from eighth grade? Did you get all A's on your confirmation tests? Hmm? <laughs> Brian did very well on the term quizzes. He won bragging rights, certainly. That's the only thing that we compete for in midweek, by the way. And the, your score on the term quiz at the end of the year gives you bragging rights for the rest of the year, but that's all. Um, yes, it is faith in the words given, that the, the words, this is my body and blood, and given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. That is the benchmark. Now, of course, you say, how do you quantify faith? How do I know if you have faith in those words? Well, We'll talk a little bit more about that. Also from the large catechism, the body cannot grasp and appropriate what is given in and with the sacrament. Wait a minute, what? The body cannot grasp what is given in the sacrament. What does that mean? The body cannot grasp it. Let me change the language. The mind is incapable of fathoming and understanding what is given in and with the sacrament. Do you see that? I can give you a thousand tests. And even if you get an A plus on every single one of those tests, it still won't tell me anything about what your faith is. It'll tell me a whole lot about what your head is, what your reason, what your mind is, what your memory is. The tests are bad for that reason alone. In this, in, this, uh, in this avenue. Uh, because, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, I'm just going to ask you to reflect. How many times did you have to take a test or you knew a test was coming in grade school or high school or college or <clears throat> in catechism class and study really, 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 really quickly right beforehand get a pretty good grade or a passing grade on your test, and then when it was all done, forget everything that you studied because you only ever studied to pass the test. See, I'm not, no hands, I don't need to know how many of you have done that. Just reflect on that, because I don't believe that any of you have not done that. <laughs> okay, so 
but this is done by the faith of the heart that discerns and desires such a treasure. It is faith that grasps, it is faith that sees, it is faith that comprehends even the mystery of the fact that this is the body and the blood. It is faith that does all that. So, I want to look at these quotes. Now we must also consider who the person is who receives such power and benefit. That is the sacrament. Briefly, as we said above about baptism and in many other places, the answer is, it is the one who believes what the words say and what they give. Now this is the sum total of a Christian's preparation to receive the sacrament worthily. Quiz, who do you think said that? <laughs> this is from the Large Catechism. Yeah, it is Luther. This is Luther from the Large Catechism. This is the sum total of a Christian's preparation to receive the sacrament. Is this a body and blood? Is it for your forgiveness? If you say yes to both of those, according to our own Book of Concord, you are now prepared with the sum total of everything that we can do to prepare you with, to receive the sacrament worthily. Here's another one. Because they, that is, this is in reference to children, because children have been baptized and received into the people of Christ, they should also enjoy this fellowship of the sacrament so that they may serve us and be useful. Ooh, guess where that's from? <clears throat> the large catechism. See, the thing that the large catechism does is it expands upon the small catechism. I've, I, say, I say this all the time because I think it's funny. Maybe you don't think it's funny, but um, the, the small catechism was written for illiterate peasants and for five-year-olds. So it's fine and dandy to take the small catechism and learn it. In fact, you should, uh, because I only say that tongue-in-cheek. It's a good thing to learn because it's so simple. So you should learn it. You should do it in your daily devotions and uh, keep it at the forefront of your mind. That's what doing it as part of your daily devotions does, is it ensures that you don't forget it, uh, that you're not memorizing it, that you're actually learning it by heart, which is different. Ruminating on it, like a cow. Hmm, that's right, the catechism. Catechism says this. Hmm. Right, and then the next day, well, it's gonna come back up again. Refresh my memory. Let me chew on that a little bit more ruminate, inwardly digest, okay? Uh, but the large catechism is better than the small catechism content-wise because all of the simplicity of the small catechism is expanded upon and explained in the large catechism. And I know I'm like a broken record. Someday we'll do a study of the large catechism and just go through it and I can talk to you all about the great stuff that's in the large catechism. Uh, until we get there, <laughs> which who knows when that'll be, but you're more than welcome to read the large catechism and, and you'll see for yourself what I mean. Here's another one. Because children have been baptized and received into Christendom, they should also participate in the fellowship of the altar. That's that's a reference to this passage from the small catechism about children being baptized. Uh, what is given at the font is nourished at the altar. 
What is given at the font is nourished at the altar. They don't, the sacraments don't exist independently from one another. You don't get to go to commune if you haven't been baptized. That's why the first question I always ask someone who, who I don't know, who comes here to, and says, Pastor, I'd like to receive the sacrament, is have you been baptized? Because if you haven't been baptized, there is nothing I can do for you here except first baptize you. And then after you've been baptized, oh boy, I can do anything for you. But you have to be baptized first. You can't have the stuff of the people who are in until you first get in. Otherwise, uh, it'll, it's like the old, the, the days of the ancient church, they would have the adult confirmands, the adult catechumens, and they would go through three years of study for the adults. See, that's the thing. That's, there's a difference between adults and children. Adults need to go through instruction. Children are brought up in the instruction. So you give them the goods because you know that you're going to keep on teaching them. Adults, you don't know. You also know that children will accept things that adults won't. The example I like to use is the monster under the bed. Your child says there's a monster under the bed and fervently believes it. So fervently, in fact, that they cannot sleep. And they weep when you tell them it's time to go to bed because they're afraid of that monster that they believe is under the bed. Now, what do you say about the monster under the bed? There ain't none. <laughs> that monster doesn't exist. Why do you say that? Why do you say that a monster doesn't exist? Okay, okay, you looked, but why else? You, do, you wouldn't have had to look to say that, would you? There is no monster. But why isn't there a monster? Experience. Okay, experience. And what does experience tell you? You've never run across a monster, and therefore monsters don't exist. Now, what does that sound like? Where does that voice come from? Here or here? It's here. Well, I don't see a monster. I looked under there. I didn't see him anymore. I've never seen a monster. The monsters aren't real. But your child says from here, no, no, the, the monster is real. And that's why we baptize children, because they believe monsters are real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but anyway, the children accept things. They don't think with reason. You think that you get smarter as you become an adult, but you don't. You get dumber because you stop thinking. You stop accepting. You stop believing as an adult. You start using reason and experience. You grow out of things. I don't have an imaginary friend. Well, I'm too old for that. I know that they don't exist. Well, so what? You know, believing so fervently that you have an imaginary friend is kind of a wondrous thing about children. The monster under the bed is kind of a wondrous thing about children, that they're so willing to believe in the things that they haven't seen. So anyway, the minimum requirement for admission to the Blessed Sacrament in the 16th century, this is the time of Luther, was to have achieved the use of reason and to have an intelligent mastery of the text of the Decalogue, the Creed, the Our Father, and the words of institution of Holy Baptism and Holy Communion without formal explanations. Basically, at the end part of the, of the 16th century, they would say, yeah, do you know what the Ten Commandments are? Do you know uh, what the Creed is? Do you know what the Lord's Prayer is? Do you know about baptism? Do you believe that this is the body and blood of Jesus? And if they say yes, they say, okay, well, I don't care how old or how young you are. If you know that stuff, then you're in. Uh, in practice, the Lutheran reformers admitted children to their first communion at between age 7 and 12. Think about that. 
I'm going to tell you this too. I grew up in a church where um, that followed this kind of a practice, where no matter how old you were, if you knew what it was and you desired the sacrament, and of course, if your parents desired that you received it, you'd go, you'd have uh, confession and absolution with the pastor, and then you'd be admitted to, to the table for first communion, which is, that's the old practice, is the distinction between first communion and confirmation. Confirmation is your, uh, the church marking that now you know the faith and you are not a novice anymore. It's your graduation from kindergarten to the eternity of first grade. Uh, but first communion is the church saying, ah, yes, you know Jesus, come and get him. So that's the difference. Do you know the faith? Do you know Jesus? Do you know what the church teaches? Do you know what the body and the blood is? There's a difference there. So anyway, uh, it's pretty remarkable when you look. <laughs> there were third and fourth graders, and you could ask them stuff about Christ, and they could explain it to you better than any adult I've ever heard. And you just kind of sit there and go, oh, my word, I've wasted my entire life studying the faith because a, four year, or a fourth grader just bested me. <coughs> yes? And, and something there, Bruce, and you're right, and that you're, you're, you're anticipating something that I'm going to talk about in, in just a minute here. Uh, it, it is important. Confirmation is an important thing because it is preparation. That's why I say my goal is not confirmation. My goal is that you understand the scriptures and you start to begin to learn how to read them so that when you are an adult in the faith, which is what confirmation says you are, when you are an adult in the faith, you know how to read the scriptures and you'll grow in them and that you know the faith. 
so that as you live the rest of your adult life, you understand your need for the sacraments, that you continue to come and receive them, you understand your need for the word, but you continue your studies, that you have a foundation that is laid that you can build upon for the rest of your life until death. That, is, that really is the point of it. And uh, I've told this story before, but in my fieldwork congregation in Fort Wayne, they had, ooh, Bill Brage was the pastor. And he was a nice guy, but he was kind of, kind of gruff. And uh, he, they would have an examination night. And, and the, uh, I will say this, there is an examination for uh, recep reception of the Lord's Supper the, for, for understanding. But the examination is typically with the pastor and often with the parents, but it's basically, are you baptized? You know, the kind of stuff that I would ask the guests. This kind of an examination is good for, like I said, the educational value, but not the benchmark for the sacrament. But anyway, so this Bill Brady, examination night, and I was this a first year field worker, so I, he said, well, you, sh you should come to this. And I said, okay, yes, sir. So I came and I sat down and there were these poor confirmands and the whole congregation came. It was a Thursday night. The whole congregation came. And he had a microphone. And then he would sit on a stool right next to the confirmant. And he had this giant book of questions. And one by one, these poor kids would come and sit. or They had to stand right in front of the microphone in front of the entire congregation. And everyone sitting there like this. <laughs> and then he would go, What is the third article of the creed? And they'd have to say it. And then he'd say, give me three scripture references that talk about the third article of the creed. And these poor kids are up there sweating through their suits. And, and you know, they're just, oh, Genesis. Uh, oh, just like, I mean, you feel so bad for them because it, is that what the Lord's Supper is about? That's what education is about, measuring what you know and making sure that you're prepared to speak the faith. But is that, what, is that what the Lord's Supper is about? Um, here's, the, here's the last quote. The model of confirmation... Oh, by the way, that last... The one I just read is from a guy named uh, Arthur Peepcorn. You may have heard of his name. He was a very smart guy, misguided in some of the things that he said, part of the Seminex crowd during the 70s and 80s, but a, but a fantastic scholar, especially when it comes to the liturgy and uh, the history of the liturgy. Wrote a lot of really, really fascinating things. So that's from his book about the church, writing, writings about the church. Okay, uh, And then there's this one by a man named Hans Biersma uh, from an article called Monkey Business in the History of Communion, or of Confirmation, which I thought the title was funny, but it's a good article. The model of confirmation favored by Luther, Philip Melanchthon, and Martin Chemnitz entailed ongoing instruction of young people, often in conjunction with their parents. Beginning in toddlerhood, it ends when the child is ready to leave the household. That's confirmation. Such instruction would not necessarily conclude with a rite or a ceremony. Because what's more important, the rite or the ceremony? or the fact that you're getting the knowledge. See, but this is about confirmation, not the sacrament. Such instruct, oh, excuse me. In this mode, first communion is clearly a separate event, often taking place while the child or youth is in the midst or at the completion of a certain phase of instruction. So you begin learning about the faith. You learn this is the body and the blood. You learn about these, the most basic things. And then they say, well, you know Jesus. As long as you know Jesus, you can go up there. So <clears throat> here's where we get back to what 
Bruce was saying, because as you know, one of my pet peeves, especially in the Lutheran church, is defining things by what they aren't. I hate that. You can never be defined by the things that you reject or by the things that you hate. And you see that often in popular Lutheranism when you ask a question like this, uh, what is justification? And the answer is some permutation of, well, you know, uh, I don't really know what it is, but I sure can tell you what it isn't. Yeah, it's not by works. Okay, but what is it? Well, hmm, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not this, it's not, and, and everything that you're taught is like a polemic, like the entire purpose of your existence in the Lutheran church is so that you can look at other people and determine why and how they're wrong, uh, which is not right. You can, you can never be defined, I'm ignoring that, you can never be defined by what you hate or by what you reject. And the church has never been defined that way. The church must always be defined by the things that she affirms and by what she accepts. So what is it that you affirm? This is why we, look, look at the Nicene Creed, okay? Why was the Nicene Creed, the, the big reason that the Nicene Creed was written by the church? Or I should say compiled. That's a better word, compiled. Because it's not like they wrote anything down that's new, but they compiled the teachings of the church. Why was it written predominantly, historically, if you remember? It was clarified misunderstandings about the yes. justification, sanctification, Kind of, kind of on those, on justification and sanctification. Because it has to do with the person of Christ. And what was the big misunderstanding? It's the same one, by the way, that was brought about the Athanasian Creed. The Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed are both addressing the same issue. Do you remember what the issue was? What, what thing about Christ was there an issue with? There was a man who was a bishop in the church and St. Nicholas punched him in the face at the Council of Nicaea. True story, it really happened. And in the icons of St. Nicholas, he's often like this, smacking another guy. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, it's not very Christian. <laughs> the guy's name was Arius. I had something to do, I'm grasping for straws here. Hmm? person of Christ. Yes, and specifically the person of Christ in relationship to the Father. So the Athanasian Creed and the Nicene Creed all say of one substance with the Father. It's all about whatever, whatever substance God is made of, Jesus is made out of, the Son is also made out of that same substance, which goes to say that they are the same. And that was because Arius uh, started, uh, the bishop Arius started teaching the heresy that is now known as Arianism, which said that the Son, eternally begotten of the Father, was of a different substance than the Father. Like, Brian, you are not your Father. You are a different substance than your Father. You are your Father's Son. Josh, you have begotten your Son but he is not eternally begotten of the same substance and essence of you. He is a different individual, separate. So 
Arius said, well, this doesn't make sense that the Son could be of the same substance eternally begotten of the Father, that Father and Son could be in the Trinity the very same, even as they are different. That doesn't make sense. So I'm going to say that God is, that God the Father begets the Son, and that means he creates the Son. He makes the Son. The Son is like Brian, not related to, but not the same as Josh the Father. Okay, so... Uh, in the Nicene Creed and in the Athanasian Creed, though, where do you see the language that says, we reject and condemn Arius? You know, we don't stand up in church and have a whole confession about the people that we hate. We have a whole confession about the things that we affirm and the things that we love. This is what we believe. Now, saying that you believe something means that you also reject something. If you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, then you reject any idea that he wasn't born of a virgin. You see how that works? But you say it always in the positive because not only are you affirming something that you do hold to, but you're also reminding yourself of the reality of the faith that you hold. What is it that I believe? Oh yes, I believe this. I believe this. This is what I hold to. This is what I believe in. Instead of, well, the one thing I believe in is that all Calvinists are going to hell and that my daughter's never going to marry a Catholic. That's for sure. You know? Well, what kind of a faith is that, if that's really what your faith is? Okay? So, what then is confirmation, really, if we get down to the nitty-gritty, if we get down to its historic use, even in the Lutheran Church? First of all, it is the practice of the Church which offers the, offers the opportunity to acknowledge Christ's mandate to make disciples by baptizing and by... There's two things, baptize and... Baptize and teach. Yeah, go, into, uh, go therefore make disciples, that's the command of the church, make disciples of all nations by baptizing them and teaching them. That's how the church makes disciples. So first we baptize you, which also means then that we let you know what kinds of things you get to do while you're baptized, which also includes receiving the Lord's Supper. But then in addition to all that, we also teach you. So you're, gonna, you're in the church, you're receiving the sacraments, but we also have to teach you what the faith is. So confirmation is, in that sense, the church, is, the church following the command of Christ to teach. Disciples can't be made just with baptizing, and they can't just be made with teaching. It has to be the two of them together, baptizing and teaching. It is also to pray for God's blessings upon the youth. And one reason why uh, we educate the youth is because the minds are malleable. You will remember things more as a youth than you will as an adult. You will develop a foundation as a youth that will last you the rest of your life, which is better for you than not having a foundation through the majority of your life and then only getting it later on in life. Uh, it is to confess boldly and to uh, to publicly confess the doctrines of the church. So you can, you can tell me that that's the body and the blood of Christ, and that's great, and I rejoice in the fact that you know your Lord. But what does the church teach about marriage? Well, that's when you're learning the faith. That's your ongoing instruction and catechesis where you start to understand what is marriage? Where is marriage instituted? How does God wish for marriage to look? How do husband and wife interact with each other? That is something that goes along with the instruction in the faith. 
It is a custom of the church which confirms the baptismal faith and it marks the movement from child to adult in the faith. Okay. Uh, you're, you're a baby in the faith and then you are educated. We're going to teach you what the faith is. And then you say, ah, now I'm starting to understand the faith. And we say, fantastic. We have done our duty like we said we would at baptism, that we would continue to teach you. And, and now uh, we're going to keep on teaching you, but now you're an adult in the faith. Now you understand the things that you are supposed to do. Right, Brian? You understand what to expect in the service. You understand what the liturgy is about. You understand the faith and what it means. You understand what marriage is. You understand all of these facets of what it is to be a Christian, uh, which also means you understand that you are a student forever and you keep coming back to Bible class and keep coming to church because there are things that you need, which is the Lord and the teaching. Going back to baptism and going back to teaching because you're a disciple now. You're not a novice, you're not a beginner. So confirmation in that sense and, and all of the things behind it really is about you saying, I'd like to be a disciple and the church saying, well, okay, here's how we're gonna make you a disciple. And then they say, now you're a disciple. And now that you're a disciple, what does that mean for you? Well, it means you're gonna keep on following Jesus and now you know how to follow Jesus and where to go, but we'll keep on giving you pointers. Uh, we just don't have to hold your hand anymore. Confirmation declares of a catechumen that he or she is a Christian who has been baptized, confesses the faith, and is in full communion with Christ and his church. That's from the Missouri Synod official statement. The beginning, uh, this, and this is the last thing, what confirmation is. It is the beginning of continued instruction. The beginning of continued instruction. When I was confirmed, the next Sunday, I was the only one from my confirmation class that was in church. And then every Sunday after that, I was the only one from my confirmation class that was in church. It's not something that begins and ends. In fact, all of the education that builds up to confirmation is like the prelude. Because now, in and after confirmation, that's when stuff really begins, not ends. That you live your whole life, as you said, Bruce, with this foundation. But what do you do with the foundation? You, you build on it. You don't just say, well, I've got a really good foundation. You know, I think I'll throw a tarp over that and I'll just climb inside. <laughs> I mean, I've never met anyone who said that. You poured the foundation so that you can put something on it. So you live your whole life with a solid foundation with the intent that then you build up on that foundation that has been poured. It is the beginning of continued instruction that is beyond the mere basics. That's all that, it is, that confirmation is, the bare bones, basic doctrines of the faith. That's why you learn the small catechism for confirmation, because it's the basic. But then you come to adult Bible class and we talk about the large catechism, because we're big time adults in the faith. <laughs> okay? So anyway, all of this is to say, I'd like you to begin opening your minds to what confirmation really is. Get back to the history of it all. Don't think of faith as something up here. Think of faith as something here.
Questions? Is that a hand or are you just, okay. All right, very good. I'll see you at the high altar. If you're, if you're uncomfortable sitting in the sanctuary, every other row is reserved, by the way. So please, please honor that and sit not in a row that has a reserved sign. And, uh, and if you're uncomfortable in the sanctuary, the service is also going to be broadcast in here. This is kind of our overflow, so you're welcome to sit in here and then go in for communion that way.